This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. I listened all day for the knock of the stranger and I often looked out from the door. The table was scrubbed, the brass shining and well swept the floor. The shadows grew longer and longer. In the grate the fire flickered and died. It's too late. He never will come now, I said and sighed. I sat there musing and musing the spinning wheel still at my side. The moonlight came in through the window, white like a bride. As the clock struck twelve, I heard nothing, but felt he had come and stayed, waiting outside, and I listened, and I was afraid. So, the man who wrote this poem was a man named Dharmapriya, which means lover of the Dharma. And Dharmapriya was actually none other than our own Sangharakshita. And he wrote this in about 1949, during his wandering days in South India. And it's called Advent, this poem. So he wrote this during his wandering days in South India, before he took ordination as a Buddhist monk. So a year before he wrote this poem, up in the Punjab, he dyed his white shirt, his Indian white shirt and his Indian sarong, which he went around in in those days. He dyed them with red mud, uh, with this uh, Geroa Mata, as it Mata, as it's called. He burned his ID papers. He gave away his possessions. He let his hair and beard grow. And with a friend who did the same thing, just wandered off to live a full-time spiritual life in the time-honoured traditional Indian fashion. He became a sadhu, a sannyasin, an anagarika, a homeless one, with no ties, no possessions, completely homeless. And eventually he settled for a while in a haunted ashram in South India and led a life devoted to meditation, study, reflection, writing, and being a source of spiritual inspiration to the local people. So this happened in his early 20s. And you can read about all this in Sangharakshita's uh, memoirs, in the Thousand Petal Lotus, or as it's been renamed, the Rainbow Road. Uh, and much of his life is, in fact, documented in different ways. In his memoirs, there's a short biography of him by Sabuti. There's quite a lot available, and as Vajratara said, you heard some of it uh, when he was here recently giving a talk. But what you might miss in reading some of this material is the depth of Sangharakshita's inner life which actually informs all of his writing, all of his work for the Dharma. Um, in this talk, I want to try and touch, if that's at all possible, that inner life. We've called it uh, glimpses of the mythic life of Sangharaksha, but that term in a way is not very satisfactory. I don't know what term you use, really. It's very difficult, actually, to evoke this side of Sangharaksha, if you like, the inner essential spiritual side. So it's only a glimpse that we're going to have. Uh, it's, a, it's a glimpse because actually, well, it's hard to see anybody's inner life. It's hard to see our own inner life sometimes. You know, actually, there's a, a whole dimension in probably most people's lives, especially 
those who follow a spiritual life, which you can only really uh, reach through symbols, through myth, and we'll only kind of glimpse it very, very slightly. And in Sangharakshita's case, it's, it's even more difficult. He's not an easy man uh, to discern, in fact. He looks extremely ordinary uh, these days. I mean, when he came here, you know, he looks like your granddad, uh, doesn't he? Um, you know, with his jacket and, in a way, he looks very, very ordinary. He doesn't stand out. That middle picture of him there, by the way, that's what he was like when I first met him in the 1970s. I mean, uh, he, he wasn't wearing robes when I first met him, but the long hair, greasy long hair and rather rough clothes that he was wearing, that's how he was. These days he looks uh, really quite ordinary, almost anonymous. If he passed him on the street, he wouldn't really think twice about it properly. And in many ways, in his writing and speaking, he's very plain. He puts a great emphasis on clarity, in a way a great emphasis on reason and clear thinking and plain and clear expression. Now this is a man, you have to remember, who has a great fondness for the clarity and reason of somebody like the great 18th century man of letters, Dr. Samuel Johnson. He wrote a poem full of praise for Dr. Samuel Johnson. And if you're in discussion with him, if you ever meet him, or if you're in a study group with him, or you're having a one-to-one meeting, meeting with him, he doesn't go in for what you might call mystical talk. Um, He doesn't go in for obfuscation and clouding of issues, which can often happen in the world of of people who follow a a sort of spiritual life. He wants clarity and practicality. When I was studying with him recently, every time we would try to take off, he just brought us right down uh, to the ground, right down to the basics of spiritual life. And I know some people even think, that they've got him sort of sussed out because they've read his works, um, and this, I mean by this even members of our own order, and that Bhante's Sangharachita is more of a sort of rationalist and, and so on. But in fact, he's very, very difficult to know, and even people who, who've lived with him very, very closely, when you talk to them, it's quite clear that they haven't fathomed the man at all. They haven't fathomed the man at all. He said in one uh, talk he gave to the order some years ago, that he thought he w- he's a really a bit of a mystery to himself. He doesn't really kind of get, have a sort of handle on himself in some ways. He's a mystery to himself. In fact, one order member once said that they thought that Sanger actually was a bit like the TARDIS in Doctor Who. Outwardly, it's a police box. Inside, there's the whole cosmos. Well, it can be a bit like that when you're with Sanger Ashton. You know, and I've gone to meet him sometimes. Sometimes, yes, it's a bit like being with my granddad. We're talking away, and then suddenly... I realise that there's this vast sort of depth that, that I can only sort of glimpse and I can't really know it. It's a quite strange sort of experience. So what I want to do here is try to see into that inner life a little bit. And I'm going to use his poems quite a lot and a closer reading of little extracts from his memoirs and also, you know, drawing on conversations I've had with him and uh, my own experience of him, I guess. And it's very important to do this because it's from the depths of his inner life that our order and spiritual movement, the FWBO and the WBO, comes from. We're not an organisation. He was once described, he told me, the person, only recently uh, he told me this, that somebody damned him with faint praise saying he's a first class organiser, meaning that he didn't really have much else to him. And Sagrach was just chuckling about that. But we're not... We're not essentially an organisation, we're a spiritual community 
inspired by his vision, which comes from a real inner life, a real rich spiritual inner life. And we are, people in our movement, are individuals who've been inspired and sparked off by that inner life. So it's important to dwell on that life, to try and go into it a bit more deeply. So sometime in 1948, Dharma Priya, the lover of the Dharma, and that was the name he gave himself, wrote this poem, Advent. There he is, in his ashram in South India, living an intensive spiritual life, uh, not just meditating, not just studying, not just reflecting, but also trying out things like Hatha Yoga and fasting. Uh, it's a very interesting account of the fasting practice he did, leading a, leading a very, very simple life with lots of silence, even though he was sharing the ashram with a friend. There's a real intensification of his spiritual life took place in this ashram. Uh, and there were just the two of them there. So until then, so between the ages of 16 and 22, he described his response to Buddhism as a sort of spiritual falling in love, which began at the age of 16 when he read the Diamond Sutra and the Sutra of Wai Lan. But in 1948, here in this ashram, this spiritual falling in love, and you can see this reflected in his poems from this period, it's full of intensely devotional poems to the Buddha and to the Bodhisattvas and to, you know, life in India. Very intensely devotional. But this naturally unfolded into a, a deeper conviction. He spent his time, around the time he wrote this poem, Advent, studying Buddhist texts and particularly looking into teachings on the three marks of conditioned existence, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and insubstantiality. He spent his time reflecting deeply on conditioned co-production. So he'd study these and then each day he'd walk up and down the veranda of the ashram just reflecting on the material that he was reading. And then at night, when he meditated, he'd meditate early in the morning and then much of the evening. At night, when he meditated, he said flashes of insight into the transcendental truths that these teachings pointed to would arise as he sat there doing his mindfulness of breathing. So it's a wonderful description of him moving much more deeply into the realm of the Dharma. But what that poem Advent conveys, and it's one of my really favourite poems by him, is something of the inner feeling of what was happening, if you like. It's so easy when we take up a spiritual practice to treat it as we treat everything else in life. We do these meditations, we go to the centre, we live in a certain way, you know, few adjustments here and there, and we expect results quickly, and we expect everything to work out as we expect it to work out. But this poem, Advent, conveys the real truth of a really serious spiritual life. Through spiritual practice, we cleanse and order the house of the self. In that poem, it's a ha about a clean house. It's very much an Indian village house, if you like. Um, there's, a very, I think, a very strong feminine feel to the poem. Uh, and it's an act of devotion, of faith, of reverence, that prepares for the arrival of the stranger, the stranger, the higher dimension, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it. So spiritual life involves intense work and application, but also patience and waiting, waiting even without hope, giving up and letting go all expectation. And then, in the depths of the night, in the silence, the stranger comes. Reality comes and waits. Wait for, waits for us. Will we go? 
Will we step outside or will we be afraid? And if we're afraid, does that stop us? Does it hold us back or do we go anyway? Sometimes contact, the beginning of contact with reality can provoke a deep, nameless, primordial fear. What Sangharachita has called, called much later in a talk, the touch of shunyata, the touch of the void, the touch of emptiness, the touch of reality. Reality is getting through, touching, breathing on our fixed conditioned self. And we feel as though that self is beginning to die. And we feel this deep primordial fear. And Sangharachita says of this experience, actually it's a very positive experience. And later, remember him telling us in a seminar that later on in his life, when he was in Kalimpong in the Himalayas, uh, after he'd been ordained as a Buddhist monk, he went through a long period, he said it lasted for years, where from time to time this overwhelming primal fear would just envelop him. He might be meditating, might be talking to somebody, could be in any situation, suddenly this tremendous fear would, would, would arise. There was absolutely nothing he could do about it. Nothing at all. He, just, he said, I just had to bow my head and let it wash over me and just carry on. So he was certainly not intimidated, not held back by this touch of shunyata, by the stranger waiting outside. Spiritual life, it's clear from this, is a life of transformation. This is quite a big theme, actually, in Sangharachita's life, I've discovered. We won't stay the same. And we have a sense of, the, of what this transformation is like from another experience in South India. This happened in 48 or 49. And he still hasn't taken ordination as a Buddhist monk. And with his friend, they've gone to a place called Tiruvannamalai in Tamil Nadu right in the deep south of India and they're staying on the mountain called Arunachala at the ashram of a very famous Hindu master uh, who's, who died long ago named Ramana Maharshi. They're staying in a cave called the Virupaksha Guha, this uh, very famous cave uh, on Arunachala where you can hear the sound Om vibrating in the cave. So there he was, he and his friend, meditating in this cave, practicing it. And I'm just going to read you one of his experiences. Long before dawn, as well as at intervals throughout the day and night, we heard the temple bell. Perhaps it was my ima imagination, but I always seemed to hear the temple bell. It was not really one bell, but two bells that I heard. The first being higher in pitch than the second, but the twin strokes came so close together and were at once so well contrasted and so well harmonised harmonized that they constituted for me a single experience as as a single experience i referred them to a single origin and thought of the sound as being produced by one bell or rather by a kind of double bell which was struck perhaps either by two hammers in one place or in two places by one hammer the bell sounded louder than any of the instruments that accompanied the evening worship louder than all of them combined it was so loud that it penetrated rock as easily as air. So loud that it made no difference whether we were inside the cave or outside it. When we were inside the cave, indeed it was as though the great bell swung not somewhere inside the temple, but up in the air, directly outside the cave. Sometimes I heard it in my dreams, 
Hour after hour it seemed to toll, incessant and insistent, wave after wave of brazen sound, breaking upon me like the repeated thunder of surf on the seashore. Sometimes it was as though the bell, swinging outside, was striking against the hill, and that the hill was the bell, and the bell itself the hammer that struck the bell. Again, the hill was not bell but anvil, and the bell the hammer that stroke after sonorous stroke smote upon the anvil. The point of impact, the point where the hill and bell met, where hammer smote anvil was the cave, was me. Between the hill and the bell, between the anvil and the hammer, I was being reshaped, was being beaten into something I knew not what. I was being changed. So when we practice the Buddha Dharma intensively, we invoke tremendous energies, deep energies, beyond what we usually think of as ourselves. And they change us, they transform us. It sounds sort of violent, doesn't it, his description? It's certainly very intense. We're also given glimpses of what such a transformation, what such a sort of change of shape uh, can lead to. In this cave he had a really wonderful, a wonderful vision. A vision of uh, what he could be, if you like, or what he was in eternity. What he was. So let me read you about this vision. One night I found myself, as it were, out of the body and in the presence of Amitabha, the Buddha of infinite light, who presides over the western quarter of the universe. The colour of the Buddha was a deep, rich, luminous red, like that of rubies, though at the same time soft and glowing like the light of the setting sun. While his left hand rested on his lap, the fingers of his right hand held up by the stalk a single red lotus in full bloom, and he sat in the usual cross-legged posture on an enormous red lotus that floated on the surface of the sea. To the left, immediately beneath the raised right arm of the Buddha, was the red hemisphere of the setting sun, its reflection glittering golden across the waters. How long the experience lasted I do not know, for I seemed to be out of time as well as out of the body. But I saw the Buddha as clearly as I had ever seen anything under the ordinary circumstances of my life, indeed far more clearly and vividly. The rich red colour of Amitabha himself, as well as of the two lotuses and the setting sun, made a particularly deep impression on me. It was more wonderful and more appealing than any earthly red. It was like red light, but so soft and at the same time so vivid as to be altogether without parallel. So these are the kind of visions that uh, open up. And the vision had a powerful effect on Sangharakshita. It said He said uh, around the time of this vision or after this vision that he started to feel homesick for Buddhism. Although he devoted himself, committed himself to the Buddhist life, to the Buddhist path, to the Buddha, he hadn't formally entered the Buddhist spiritual community, he hadn't been ordained as a monk. And he'd lived for a number of years among Hindus because there were very few Buddhists in India at that time. And he'd met very few Buddhists. Uh, but although he was among Hindus and he'd met very few Buddhists, it made him all the more committed to the Buddhist path. 
He was so alone, so isolated really. And even uh, on the end of hostility from his friend who was still kind of grappling with uh, trying to leave uh, his Hindu upbringing. But it made him even more uh, desirous of, of wanting to be Buddhist. So the two of them set off to North India, to Sarnath, to take ordination from the Buddhist monks there, only to be rudely and roughly turned away. The monks in Sarnath just thought they were a couple of tramps um, who uh, were on the make, so they turned them away. And it was a tremendous disappointment to him and his friend. And he also had to deal with his friend's violent reaction. It just confirmed all his suspicions about Buddhism and he was saying we should just become Hindu monks and join the Ramakrishna mission and become social workers. So this is very, very interesting. Uh, Sangharachita said in fact that the Buddhist he'd met at best had been worthy and dedicated and at worst very, very worldly and self-centred, the Buddhists he'd met in India. Whereas the Hindus he'd met were generally more helpful and some Hindu teachers he met had had he felt had considerable, had made a uh, uh, considerable spiritual attainment. But that didn't matter. He still wanted to commit himself to Buddhism. It didn't matter to him about what Buddhists did or didn't do, how they were. He was a follower of the Buddha and was only going to commit himself to that path. He had no doubt about that at all when he was turned away so rudely for ordination. It just increased his faith uh, in the Buddha and the Buddhist path. So this meant he had to walk, he and his friend, from Sarnath to Kushinagara, the holy place where the Buddha entered Parinirvana, to seek ordination. They were told by a friendly monk that uh, they might well get ordination there from a monk named Uchandramani, a, a Burmese monk. So they had to walk a hundred miles, roughly, at the height of the Indian summer, to get ordination. Remember, they didn't have any money, they couldn't go by train. So they followed the railway track, mainly at night, avoiding tigers and hyenas, walking towards their ordination. Many of their friends really discouraged them from doing it because it was such a dangerous uh, journey, but they were so determined to commit themselves to the Buddha Dharma and Sangha, especially Sangharachita. And eventually, yes, they were given ordination as novice Buddhist monks and Dharmapriya became Sangharachita, which means protected by the Sangha, protected by the Sangha. So I find this story very, very interesting. This account of Sangharachita's tremendous individual and personal commitment and determination and willingness to enter considerable hardship to get ordained and to follow the Buddhist path and to practice the Buddhist path even though actually he was on his own and even though that some of the Buddhists he was meeting were rather hostile. Commitment to Buddhist life must always be an individual commitment. No one can do it for you. It's you and me that have to live that life. As the Buddha says, the Buddhas only point the way. They don't do it for you. You have to do it. Uh, you have to do it from yourself. So Sangharachita's experience, experience of Buddhist life is a life of individual commitment. And that finds expression, this, this, this emphasis on individual commitment and doing it regardless of what anybody else is doing. It finds expression in our own ordination ceremony, the ceremony that he himself devised. In the, in the Western Buddhist order, 
there's two aspects to the ordination ceremony. There's a public aspect, do it in front of other people, you're received into a spiritual community. But before that, there's what's called the private ordination, where you go alone to your private preceptor, your individual preceptor. And the symbolism here, as Sangharachala always used to tell us when he performed ordinations himself, the symbolism here is you will go for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. You will commit yourself to the Buddhist life, even if nobody else in the entire world is doing so. That's the symbolism. Regardless of what others do or don't do, including other Buddhists, you still follow the path. You still practice the precepts. You still follow that life. So this is something, of course, that comes out of his own experience. This is why we have this ceremony. Because he's lived this life, lived this way. So although the Buddhist life depends on such single-minded determination and self-reliance and individual commitment, that is not the whole story. And it's not the whole story for Sangharakshita. After he was ordained as a Buddhist monk, he spent some time with a very famous Indian Buddhist monk and Pali scholar named Jagdish Kashyap, Kashyapji, who taught him Pali, the language in which the early Buddhist scriptures are written down in, Abhidharma and logic, uh, which he really enjoyed uh, studying with him. Very much the, the scholarly life. Uh, and he also spent his time with Kashyapji wandering North India, going in particular to the land of the Buddha's great disciples around Nalanda and so on. And during this wandering period with Kashyapji, Sangharachita came across a book by the very famous Cistercian monk Thomas Merton. And in that uh, book by Thomas Merton, there was an essay on the importance of surrender, of the importance of the disciple surrendering his will to his spiritual superior, because, of course, in the Christian monastic tradition, obedience to the abbot is one of the really important practices. You just surrender your will to the will of the abbot of the monastery. And this struck Sangharachita very forcibly. During that time, around that time, he was greatly preoccupied with the problem of the ego. If you look at a lot of the essays that he wrote at that time that were published, have been published in uh, Crossing the Stream, uh, you find a lot of essays to do with this about the problem of the ego. How do you get beyond or transcend or overcome the ego? And Sangharachita's concern wasn't theoretical, it was practical. Ego, self-view, fixed self-view is the root of all spiritual problems. And for Sangharachita, meditation wasn't really enough. Because after all, there you are using the ego to get beyond the ego. Isn't that a sort of self-defeating activity? He felt that what was needed was something much, much more drastic than meditation, reflection and so on. He wanted something more practical. So he was really struck by Thomas Merton's emphasis on the practice of surrendering, of being obedient and surrendering one's individual will to one's spiritual superior. You just do what he wants. Uh, you follow his wishes. I know some of, some of you are probably thinking, oh, don't fancy that. Well, neither do I. Um, so don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> you just give up any individual wishes. So Sangharachita tried this with Jagdish Kashyap. He thought, right, okay. I'll surrender my will to Kashyapji, who was a very corpulent 
Buddhist monk, I should say. He sounded like a very, very lovely man. But Sankaracha says, this really wasn't very easy. Because Jagdish Kashyap would often come to him and say, Sankaracha what do you think we should do about this? How should we do this? Shall we go here? What would you like to do today? So, <laughs> Sankaracha couldn't surrender his will. But then one day, Jagdish Kashyap took Sankaracha to the border town of Kalimpong up in the eastern Himalayas, to visit his Nepalese disciples. And at the end of the visit, Jagdish Kashyap, as he climbed into uh, his jeep to take him back down to the plain, said to Sangharakshita, stay here and work for the good of Buddhism. The Newars, that's the Nepalese disciples, the Newars will look after you. Sangharakshita wasn't quite sure, he said, whether or not the Newars would look after him. He had nowhere to stay, he had no money. But as he put it in his own words, the word of the Guru was not to be disobeyed. And he bowed his head in acquiescence and took what came. And I think there is a sort of paradox uh, between these two positions, you know, of determined individual spiritual effort, being really self-reliant. But we need that in in a Buddhist life. But we also need to be able to surrender and open up to those outside us, beyond us, especially those who are more experienced. But, strangely enough, in order to surrender, you've got to have great spiritual strength and determination to do that. You have to be able to really take responsibility for yourself. So there's a strange sort of, perhaps, paradox there. And this theme of surrender, of opening up to something higher, something beyond, is a very important strand in Sangharachita's life. It keeps sort of emerging and and re-emerging. Some years after this, uh, in the mid-1950s, Sangharachita met a rather strange Parsi. Parsis are the Zoroastrian community, particularly of of Bombay. He met a rather strange Parsi holy man named Dr. Mehta, who used to be... uh, uh, Gandhiji's, uh, Mahatma Gandhi's, uh, one of Mahatma Gandhi's physicians, and they became friends. And Dr. Mehta wasn't a Buddhist, but he was a meditator. And he often spoke about the guidance, the guidance that came from a higher power, that came to him in meditation, that gave him messages from the divine, from God, he said. As Bhante said, as time went on, he realised that Everybody had to obey such guidance, uh, should follow such guidance, and of course that meant following Dr. Metta. Now, Bhante Sangharachita didn't agree with all of that, but certainly felt that in meditation, he felt in his own meditation, he needed to move to a much deeper level. He felt that his, what the Yogacara tradition calls the defiled mind consciousness, the dualistic consciousness, needed to open itself to the influence of what he called the transcendental outpourings of the Absolute. He wasn't sure how this would happen, but he was confident that if he entered the lower dhyanas, the lower absorptions in meditation, if he became absorbed in in those, if he went deeper into those, he could open up to higher, to deeper influences. So there's a very interesting retreat he took, a five-week retreat he took in the city of Pune um, in western India with Dr. Mehta and his disciples. Sangharachita was doing his Buddhist meditation practice, had his own little hut, and he kept a meditation diary of that retreat, just brief notes, just jottings about what happened. And he said, 
In a way, they're a bit like dried flowers, you know, that you keep. They just give you a bit of a reminder of the actual experiences that went on. And they're very interesting, these, these notes. So I'm going to read you some of these. This little bit of an insight into, uh, into Sangharakshita's meditation experience. And the kind of, yes, the experiences of something higher coming through. So they're just little extracts. Concentrated quite easily neither quite in nor quite out of ordinary mind. Experience of positive peace in crown of head. This descended and spread throughout whole body. Experience of, of ascending and descending at the same time. All kinds of movements and explosions of energy in the body, though not exactly in the physical body, as though some healing at the same time destructive force was pulling and stretching and kneading the mind and then a bit later on he uh, he talks he, he starts to ask questions in meditation he enters a deep deeper meditation and uh, sort of sub-vocally asking questions about certain things going on in his life and anyway let's let's see let's see what happens concentrated feeling of total dissociation between past and present life Doubt, awareness of answer, whatever leads to, uh, um, and it, well, it's a, a, a truncated quote from the Buddhist scripture, whatever leads to absence of desire and so on and so forth, that is my dharma. Decided to ask more questions as follows. Question, what should be my attitude towards my surroundings after returning to Kalimpong? Answer, absolute detachment. This detachment is positive must be detached even from the Buddha. Detachment as taught by the Buddha transcends both attachment and detachment in the ordinary sense. Question. How to behave towards people? Answer. Buddha first and everyone else second. Awareness of shortcomings in this respect. Question. What about acquiring land for a monastery? Answer. This will be settled after your return. You must be ready to be anywhere and nowhere. Awareness of the Buddha's presence, though rather faintly, reflected whether these awarenesses were genuine guidance, concluded that since they were in agreement with the scriptures and were not unreasonable, they could be accepted. <laughs> and a bit later, entry for the 12th of February. Good concentration. Sensation of positive peace descending. Asked, what should I do? Awareness of answer came at once. Nothing. Experience of emptiness and stillness. Self reduced to an absolute pinpoint. This state lasted for some time. Awareness. Whatever works you may have to do later on, in the midst of them, you will have to maintain this state of mind. And he goes on experiences on subsequent days, including visions of flowers, made as though of flame and of jewels of intense light, sensations as of a light trying to break through, as well as of vastness and emptiness, and an awareness of the importance and meaning of the White Lotus Sutra. My predominant experience, however, especially during the second half of the month, was one of increasingly intense feelings of love and devotion towards the Buddha and Avalokiteshvara. On one occasion I felt in the region of the heart a love and peace so strong that I was unable to bear it and had to stop meditating for a while. 
There was also a sensation as of someone touching me on the heart and an experience of my heart chakra being suddenly opened during this period, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Avalokiteshvara featured no less prominently in my experience than did the Buddha and it was not without significance that his name should be mentioned in my last diary entry for the evening of the 7th of March which ran fairly good concentration, feeling of devotion, awareness of universe as it appears in the eyes of Avalokiteshvara. Again, feeling of devotion, consciousness of peace, descending from a great height. Some uh, insight into Sangharachita's meditations. And it wasn't long after these experiences that Sangharachita met the Tibetan Lama Chatral Songye Dorje, who initiated him into the meditation and mantra recitation of Green Tara. Green Tara, uh, Rinpoche said, was his yidam, his personal deity. Green Tara, the uh, bodhisattva, the goddess, the Buddha, the archetype of the essence of, of wisdom and compassion. Chattra Rinpoche said that Sangharach had a deep affinity for this particular bodhisattva. And in time, he, and, well, he took up the regular meditation on this form, this particular deity. And in time, he met other lamas and was initiated into further uh, meditations of, of different uh, Buddhist deities. But he said from the moment that he was initiated into Green Tara, He felt connected with that higher, deeper, transcendent dimension and he always felt in touch with it, never parted from it and indeed guided by it. And that higher dimension, you know, going on over the years, almost that contact with that higher dimension has has affected Sangharach almost in spite of himself. He said that when he, in 1967 and 1968, started the FWBO and the WBO, it was very difficult. It was very difficult starting it. It was an easy thing to do. And he didn't feel that he was well suited to starting a new Buddhist movement. He said he's under no illusions that he hasn't got the best kind of qualities to start a Buddhist movement at all. In many ways, Sangharakshita prefers solitude and prefers a life of study and meditation and reflection and uh, contact with just a few people, and it might surprise you, but that is actually, in a way, more what he's like. But he said, famously on one occasion, that in fact he didn't think it was he who started the FWBO and the WBO at all. He said, there are times when I am dimly aware of a vast, overshadowing consciousness that has, through me, founded the order and set in motion our whole movement. So the order, the FWBO, as far as he's concerned, is bigger than him, bigger than any of us. And he said recently in a talk, when talking about the transmission of the flame of the Dharma, which he feels he's been involved in, is a cooperative effort. It's not just him. It's all of us. Uh, We're all involved with this. We're involved in something much bigger. Perhaps we could say it's the bodhicitta itself. It's the, the force, the power, if you like, of wisdom and compassion that we are all attempting to cooperate with, much bigger than any of us individually. Now, openness to this uh, dimension of reality is not just about what goes on in meditation. It's not just receiving teachings, for example, in meditation. It's not just about experiences of bliss and peace. It will also manifest in activity to benefit others. And throughout the whole of Sangharachita's Buddhist life, from its earliest times, even 
from when he was a very young man, he's been active in one way or another in bringing Buddhism to others and working with other Buddhists to establish Buddhism in the modern world. Uh, in India, he, he did that all the time, you know, the, the period that I've been talking about. He was involved in writing Buddhist articles, helping to organise Buddhist festivals, giving lectures, that sort of thing, organising Buddhist activities, pulling people together. Uh, and that obviously has continued in the West. And in India, he became deeply involved in the movement of conversion to Buddhism from those regarded by the traditional Hindu caste system as untouchables, as outcasts. These days they're known as Dalits, which means the downtrodden. And in the 1950s, led by Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, hundreds of thousands of Dalits uh, became Buddhists. They were very poor, very disadvantaged in every way, and their movement of conversion was the beginning of a real spiritual change. It was a movement to bring about inner self-respect to change the whole circumstances of their lives. And Sangharachita became deeply involved, deeply spiritually involved with that movement. Dr. Ambedkar converted to Buddhism with hundreds of thousands of followers in Nagpur, right in the centre of India, in October 1956. And roughly eight weeks later, Sangharachita was in Bombay with his friend, Dr. Mehta. And Dr. Mehta was putting a lot of pressure on Sangharachita to stay with him and be his disciple. He was even receiving, Dr. Mehta was, even more special guidance from God, telling him that the the monk Sangharachita must stay and not leave. And if he lived, if he left, there would be dire consequences for him. But somehow, even before he heard all of this, Sangharachita knew that he had to leave Bombay and that he had to get to Nagpur soon. He just knew it. There was no inner voice, there was no inner guidance telling him that. He just knew he had to get to Nagpur by a certain day. just knew that. It's very interesting reading the passage of that in The Sign of the Golden Wheel. He talks about his friends in Bombay, and they're lovely friends in many ways, but he just keeps saying, I knew I had to be in Nagpur by a certain day. He got there on that day. And when he arrived at Nagpur Station, he was given a tremendous reception by the Nagpur Buddhists. Um, tr- there was tremendous inspiration among the Buddhists in the city. But then later, the terrible news came that Dr. Ambedkar had died in Delhi. This was a great shock to the Buddhist community, the new, the nascent Buddhist community. But Sangharachita, it wasn't so much of a shock because he'd met him some weeks previously and seen that he was a very sick man and he was completely worn out through his efforts to liberate his people. But the people in Nagpur were completely devastated. The whole Buddhist movement in India was in deep shock and in real danger of just losing ground. So Sangharachita said, look, we must have a condolence meeting. So they went to a park in Nagpur, Kastachan Park, I know it well, and thousands and thousands of people gathered in their white clothes that they'd worn just a few weeks previously at their conversion to Buddhism. And they all came into the park with lighted candles. And he said it was like a great golden wheel was forming in this park. And when he got up to spoke, there was, when he got up to speak, there was just a terrible outpouring of grief. He saw grown men, you know, just, just on the ground, sobbing. 
And he, he said he felt really overwhelmed uh, by this himself, Sangharachita, but he knew he had to keep going. He had to be strong, if you like. And he insisted that Dr. Ambedkar was not dead, but he lived on through the Buddhist community. And he said he had a very strange experience as he was speaking to this group of people. He said as he spoke above the crowd, there hung an enormous presence, a really vivid presence, to this day, he doesn't know whether it was the departed consciousness of Dr. Ambedkar just looking on his people or whether it was the collective product of the people he was speaking to. He didn't know, but it was there as vivid to him as the people he was speaking to. And the next four days, he gave lectures uh, to over 30 mass meetings. So in four days, 30 lectures. He visited all the Buddhist localities of Nagpur and initiated even more people into Buddhism. But what was this like? What was this experience of this intense uh, activity like? Well, he wrote to a friend about it. My own spiritual experience during this period was most peculiar. I felt that I was not a person, but an impersonal force. At one stage I was working quite literally, without any thought, just as one is in samadhi. Also, I felt hardly any tiredness, certainly not at all what one would have expected from such a tremendous strain. When I left Nagpur, I felt quite fresh and rested. Now let us see about the rest of the programme. He was off to do other things. It's an extraordinary uh, uh, passage. I remember when he, he, he was telling me about this personally one time, and then he kind of paused and he said, well, I was a young man then. <laughs> but what you get from this uh, passage is, the intense outer life and an intense inner life coming together. They're expressions of one another. So often they're in conflict, aren't they? We do the outward things and we want to do the inner things for ourselves and you know, they don't seem to meet. But here they're resolved into something higher. There's intense outer activity, but it's the expression. Uh, it is samadhi, absorption. Throughout Sangharachita's life we come across, in fact, tensions and conflicts generated by the intensity of his spiritual practice. Um, we shouldn't be surprised if we experience conflict as we go on in our spiritual life. In a way, it's a sign of success. So often we think, oh gosh, something's wrong. There's a tension and conflict between different aspects of myself, different parts of my life. No, no, that's a sign of success. You're becoming more aware of the polarities uh, in your being. They need to be resolved on a higher level. Earlier, during his time with Jagdish Kashyap, there was a kind of conflict or war between what he called Sangharachita I and Sangharachita II. Sangharachita I was the ascetic, the monk, very austere, meditating a lot, observing the precepts, fasting, the Buddhist scholar, the Buddhist writer. Sangharachita II was the poet who just wanted to lie in bed and dream and write poems and travel and see people see places and there was a real tension between these aspects of him sometimes you know you might think well it's a bit strange they shouldn't be in conflict but they were for him uh, even to the point that he burned all the poetry that he'd written up until that time or a lot of it which was a great shock he said for both Sangharachita 1 and Sangharachita 2 <laughs> but he said sometimes the two of them would come together they would collaborate and form Sangharachita 3 the ascetic and the poet, fused into something more than themselves. In the mid-1950s, 
we see many poems and articles and essays that revolve around these kinds of things. Um, the spiritual life, renunciation, going beyond attachment and desire, versus desire, love, beauty, essays about the sublimation of desire, the transformation of desire, art, and, it, and, and the place of art in spiritual life. You can see him wrestling with all these areas. And this is brought out especially in a very long love poem. You have to call it a love poem. Written between 1950 and 1953, entitled The Veil of Stars. It's, it's really a sequence of short, very pithy poems, rather like the poetry of Rabindranath Tagore, which I think he was reading quite a lot, lot of at the time, which he just wrote down to express a particular mood, but which really tell a story. They tell the story of a lover who falls in love intensely with another. They enjoy a friendship, but the intensity of love is not reciprocated. So it's extremely painful for the lover. But the verses go on to describe the healing power of nature and the gradual power, uh, the gradual transformation of desire into love and compassion and the seeing of the, Bodhisattva, the Buddha and the Bodhisattva in all things. And let me just read you um, just a few um, verses from the beginning and end of this long poem. So these are the first few verses. The coming of love is mysterious as the flight of a bird from unknown lands. It's going mysterious as the unseen tumult of the wind blowing we know not whither. What is this mystery of love that has opened in my heart like a bud at midnight and sends its sweetness crying through the dark like the voice of one mad with desire? Strange it is, strange indeed, that shooting up through the crevices of my heart unfolds itself ever whiter and whiter, the pale green lily of love. If the flower of love blooms not within the garden of my heart, with what shall I come in my hands to worship thee, O Lord? Bring flowers, bring lights, bring incense, O fools that do not know the holiness of love. And then after quite a long journey, the poem concludes with these verses. Desire for anyone flowers into love for someone and at last bears fruit as compassion for everyone. The tear of the Bodhisattva's compassion flows through the world as love, even as the austere snows of the Himalayas flowing rivers down into the green plains. It is the smile of the Bodhisattva that flashes upon me from the heart of the golden sunset and the flood of his compassion that inundates my soul with streams of love. Joy deepens and deepens within my heart until it opens into an infinite sky of knowledge ablaze with stars. Only fools think that love is something that happens between a man and a woman. The wise know that it is love that makes the planets join hands together in their dance of joy about the sun. It is this great rhythm of joy that having given birth to millions of stars in the sky now pours down into my heart and ecstatically begets there the unending mystery of my love. What joy is it to realise that every atom of the universe 
is reflected in my heart and that the love of my heart is mirrored in every atom of the universe. Reality is reflected in my heart as love and this love of mine is in turn mirrored in the all-embracing bosom of reality as though the moon lay reflected in the depths of the ocean and the ocean in the calm, clear heart of the moon. I know that even from the inmost depths of heaven I shall see your face shining out upon me above the utmost beauty of the stars. The secret of love is love. Let the silence speak. Um, some years later, actually, when he gave a talk in, uh, in this country, um, he said he wanted to write a commentary on this long poem. poem. Um, I don't think we're going to get it now, which is a shame. But what he's really getting at is that what he's living through, it really points to the direct necessity of involving our deepest desires, our most powerful emotions in our spiritual life. They all have to be transformed. This is why beauty, why art, why symbols and images are so important, why spiritual friends are so important. We must avoid Buddhism becoming a sort of set of nice ideas and ideals that we dip into whilst living a sort of thoroughly worldly life. Our desires, our deepest desires, must be involved and transformed. Our vision must reach uh, our emotions. And it, it's interesting, this theme is, is still alive for Sangha, actually. He told me about a dream recently that he'd had. He seems to be having quite a lot of dreams these days and telling us about them. I'm sure he won't mind me telling you about it. He told me that in this dream there were two great Sufis. There was Rumi and another Sufi who I think is probably Junaid. He couldn't quite remember the name, but I suspect it's Junaid. Rumi is an ecstatic Sufi, as I'm sure you all know from reading the famous translations of Rumi. Junaid is known for being a sober Sufi. And the two of them were holding tightly a piece of red cloth in the dream. So one end, the ecstatic Rumi, the other end, the sober, ascetic Junaid. And a voice or an awareness came in the dream which said, Rumi and Junaid keep the Sufi path taught. Intention, in other words. A very, very interesting dream that you need both the ecstatic, the emotional, the devotional, but you also need the sober, the clear, the mindful, the aware. You need both intention, not just in balance, but intention. But transformation, yes, let's stay with transformation of emotion. I think his experience of emotional transformation comes to culmination in about 1953, um, I've never checked this out with him, but I suspect it does. Because there's a great poem called Transformation. No fruit without the seed. Desire has flowered into a star tonight. By subtle alchemies, my fire turns heatless and shines forth as light. From link to link the enchainment grows that each to all and all to each doth bind the ordure to the rose. Height mates with depth, while thought to speech leaps as a lover to his love. O fools who, try, who strive to separate 
below from the embraces of above, wisdom from beauty. If the seeds destroyed, where are the flowers that ye would consecrate? Ye know not the great mystery of the void. The Sangharakshita, the, the Buddhist archetype, the Buddhist image, the Buddhist symbol, the being that embodies the spiritual principle of transformation, of the transcendental transforming the mundane, is Guru Padmasambhava. Guru Padmasambhava. And he first came across an image of Padmasambhava in Darjeeling, quite by chance in the early 1950s. It was a huge image. He just wandered into one of these temples in the Darjeeling Bazaar and in the gloom saw this extraordinary image of this wrathfully smiling, smiling but slightly wrathful figure, wearing a lotus cap and many robes with his two consorts either side of him and the image burned into him. He said, though I had never seen the figure of Padmasambhava before, it was familiar to me in a way that no other figure on earth was familiar. Familiar and fascinating. It was familiar as my own self, yet at the same time, infinitely mysterious, infinitely wonderful and infinitely inspiring. And from then on the figure of Guru Rinpoche was to occupy a permanent place in my inner spiritual world. And later on, some years later, he met a Tibetan Lama named Karchu Rinpoche who befriended him, who initiated him into the meditation on Padmasambhava. And Padmasambhava has become one of Sangharachita's main spiritual practices, one of his main meditations. And when he gave him the initiation into this meditation, which took a couple of days, Karchu Rinpoche renamed Sangharachita. He said, now you are Urgyen Sangharachita. You're not just Sangharachita, you are Urgyen Sangharakshita. Urgyen is the Tibetan uh, way of trying to say Udiyana. And Udiyana was the land where Padmasambhava was born. It's a sort of strange, mythical uh, realm. And it's also one of his names, Urgyen. So Karchu Rinpoche underlines Sangharakshita's connection with Padmasambhava. And Padmasambhava was the main figure associated with the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet in the 8th century. And he's a kind of historical but really mythical figure. And the stories of the conversion of Tibet involve Padmasambhava converting the gods, the elementals, so that they become protectors of the Dharma. He built monasteries, he taught the Dharma, he became the focus for a Sangha or a spiritual community and he also hid Dharma treasure teachings for future generations so that they could practice the Dharma for their time and their place. And Padmasambhava made prophecies as well, one of which goes, when the iron bird flies, my Dharma will go to the west. And as we know, Ergin Sangharachita returned to the west in the early 1960s. He was invited to do so. He didn't expect to. He thought that he'd just spend the rest of his life in India, um, spending his time um, meditating in and studying in Kalimpong and working with the new Buddhists uh, on the plains. But he did come to the West and he stayed, eventually starting the FWBO in 1967 and conducting the first ordinations into the Western Buddhist order 
a year later. And it's quite a story in itself. Quite a story. And uh, in a way, there's so much to say here. Uh, in the, first of all, in the East, Sangharachda led a pretty traditional life. Traditional Buddhist monk's life, really. He operated within a traditional framework. He lived with other monks. He met with lay people. He had his monastery in Kalimpong, his interdenominational Buddhist monastery. He would meditate, he would write, he would go on retreat, would meet his teachers. And in the winter times, he'd go down to the plains and he'd teach the new Buddhists. Coming to the West involved new challenges in all sorts of ways. He'd been invited over by the existing, very small British Buddhist establishment. But in the two years that he was with them, he upset some people. Not everybody, but some people. He wasn't prepared to be what a leading British British Buddhist of the time told him to be, which was, just think of yourself as the Buddhist vicar of Hampstead. Well, Sangharachita could never be a Buddhist vicar. Uh, Absolutely no way. And while he was away saying farewell to teachers and friends in India because he decided to stay uh, and work for the Dharma uh, in the West, uh, he got a letter from the British Buddhist establishment telling him not to return. There were no reasons, just don't come back, stay away. Just say you've decided to stay in India. And his response, as soon as he read the letter to the friend he was with at the time, you know what this means, this means a new Buddhist movement. And one of the things I know about Bhante, it never... Tell him not to do something. It's a very bad thing to do. Um, never tell him not to do something or never tell him to do something. You can be sure that uh, he's going to move against you. He talked to his Tibetan teachers. He talked to his friends. They just encouraged him to return and to carry on. And return he did. And he says at this time, when he came back to Britain, He said, well, it was. He did feel a bit betrayed. He didn't feel bitter about it, but he did feel betrayed that there was one particular person who he felt really let him down. But later on, he quoted, in in writing about this period, he he quoted the psychologist James Hillman, who says of betrayal, that betrayal can, can be an initiation into a new kind of consciousness. And he said he felt as if he, was en- he had to enter into the desert at this time. You know, he just had to kind of go it alone. You know, there were friends who were very supportive of him, but he was on his own, really. And it's interesting that uh, he wrote poems around this time called Scapegoat. You know, there's the old Jewish tradition of the scapegoat being sent out into the desert, taking all the sins of the Jewish people. And for many years, he used to have on the wall of his study Uh, Holman Hunt's famous painting of the scapegoat. He said he liked the colours of the pre-Raphaelite painters because they're quite psychedelic. Um, But uh, yes, he used to like this image of the scapegoat. He also found himself, when he first came to the West, he went on a holiday in Italy with a friend. And one of the things he was really struck by was was Renaissance painting. He was always, as a young lad, he was into looking at painting. But he, was, he, he, he responded, he said, powerfully to the figure of Saint Jerome. Renaissance descri- uh, depictions of Saint Jerome in his hut, in the desert, translating the Bible into the Vulgate, into the common tongue. And years later, I was there when he did it in 1984 in Tuscany on an ordination retreat, he wrote and read a remarkable paper called Saint Jerome Revisited where he basically meditated on 
the Renaissance depictions of Saint Jerome. Why was it? Why was he responding to this image? This image which is of a Christian saint, in fact Saint Jerome was a rather bad-tempered, cantankerous father of the church. Why was he responding? What was he seeing? What were the Renaissance painters really depicting? Because he felt what they were depicting was really transcending, in fact, the Christian iconography. What was he really seeing, St. Jerome, in the desert with the skull and the lion at his table, translating in the dark the Bible into the, into the, uh, into the vulgar tongue? And what he was seeing, he said, was himself, in a way. He was seeing the archetype of the translator. He was seeing, he was so drawn to St. Jerome, because what he was seeing was what he was doing, the real significance of what he was doing. What he was doing, what he was involved with, was translating the Dharma. The Dharma has its, is a tradition that has its origins and history in the East. And there he was, in the West, in a completely different environment, in the desert of the 20th century, translating the Dharma. Not translating text. It's not just a question of translating Buddhist texts. Real translation is going deeply into the depths of the Dharma, going beyond the words and the traditional Eastern expressions to discover the actual experience of the Dharma directly, the essence of the Dharma, the universal Dharma, if you like. And then to translate that, to bring that into the light and to find terms, practices, even institutions that people could use in the modern West. So he was seeing himself in the image of St. Jerome. It's really interesting this, you know, he's res- because it, 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 I'd, I'd really recommend you read this paper. Oh, there's two, there's called The Journey to Il Convento and there's St. Jerome Revisited. And they're, they're, they're about his responses to Renaissance painting. And how can a Buddhist, if you like, part one of the things is how, does it, how can a Buddhist respond to this imagery, be moved by this imagery and... Really, he shows us a way of reading uh, Western traditions of painting. So we find at the early days of um, his, his, his time in the West, between, um, you know, before he started the FWBO and then starting the FWBO, he enters this period. He says that there, there were times where he experienced so much sort of, well, just ecstasy, as though his consciousness was flooding across boundaries. And you can hear it. In some of the lectures that he gave at that time, you can t- tremendous energy in his lectures. You can hear the sort of podium shaking as he bangs it and things like that. And you can hear out in the street a, an ambulance going by with its siren and things like that. It's quite, uh, you know, some of the, the early lectures, like in the Eightfold Path series, are very evocative. But he was trying to find, some, a, a, if you like, a new voice, if you like, to really give expression to the Dharma in a way that would really work for people. And, well, this is reflected in some of the poetry of the time. So this is called new. And he doesn't mean by this, by the way, new in the sort of Tony Blair sense, you know, new labour, new this, new. You know, it's not new as opposed to, you know, the past is rubbish. It's new in, well, you'll see what the new is. I should like to speak with a new voice. Speak like Adam in the garden. Speak like the Rishis of old, announcing in strong, jubilant voices the sun, moon, stars, dawn, winds, fire, 
storm and above all the God-given, intoxicating, ecstatic soma. Speak like divine men celebrating the divine cosmos with divine names. I should like to speak with a new voice telling the new things that I know, chanting in incomparable rhythms new things to new men, singing the new horizon, the new vision, the new dawn, the new day. I should like to use new words, use words pristine, primeval, words pure and bright as snow crystals, words resonant, expressive, creative, such as breathe the music built Ilion. The old words are too tired, soiled, stale, lifeless. New words come to me from the stars, from your eyes, from space. New words vibrant, radiant, able to utter the new me, able to build for new men a new world. So there's also a strong emphasis here on, on communication of, um, you know, really sort of stripping things away. There came a point where he just stopped wearing robes. Uh, he just felt that they just got in the way and just wanted to be with people in a much more direct kind of way. He wrote a poem called The Time Has Come, which he dedicated to Trungpa Rinpoche, Lama Trungpa Rinpoche, who in a way went through a similar sort of process. The time has come for us to lay aside the masks, painted hieratic masks. The time has come for us to hang up the gorgeous costumes in the green room cupboard, to leave the brilliantly lit stage, the applause, and to go home through deserted streets, to a quiet room, up three flights of stairs, and to someone perhaps with whom we can be ourselves. We also find this, well it's related to this thing of being with people closely. He went to Glastonbury Tour, went down there with a group of people. He was celebrating one uh, Wesak festival, one Buddha Day festival. And the group of people who came to the festival said, hey, why don't we all go down to Glastonbury together? This was the 1960s. So they all jumped in a van, travelled down to Glastonbury, picked up people on the way, all arrived there. And he wrote a long poem about it. And I'm going to read, the, not the whole of this poem, it's far too long, but there's a number of things that come together here. He's just with people. He's just communicating with people. Whoever's there, wanting to get the Dharma across to them. Across to them. He's also connecting with the deep, well, the deep archetypes, I suppose, of being in the West, in all sorts of ways. You know, he's connected with Western culture, but this is just a kind of symbol of that, if you like. So I'm just going to read the beginning and the end of On Glastonbury Tour, just a few bits of that, just to give you a flavour of that. So this was written in 1969. Dragons were slain here ages ago. Dragon's blood soaked into the earth, stained white chalk miles deep. Now, westward looking at evening, all that we see is the dragon's back humped half out of the earth, a little path running along the spine, and a red sun staining the atmosphere as we stand on Glastonbury Tor. Michael, Archangel of the Summit, were you defeated when the elements raged? When the lightning struck, were you unable to defend your own 
giant spear broken, did you flee discomforted, your church in ruins, the tower alone erect, funnel now between heaven and earth, linking what the swing of your sword had striven to keep apart, releasing the old gods, beliefs, myths, rituals, religions, all that your bright feet would have trodden down forever, cauldron unlidded long ago, the tour still boils over, white mist from wet clay ascending, clockwise we climb from ledge to ledge, waded obliquely through the evening, swam through magical shapes, phantoms, mysteries thick as weeds in water, through voices from the past, visions of Arthur, Merlin, cup, lance, till at length emerging, the massive bulk of the tower, strong, four-square, stood over us, threatening, protective. And then later, the conclusion, night, 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 night. Within the tower, within the funnel, the grey space troglodytes we sat, refugees from civilization from the world, from ourselves perhaps, sat on damp earth amid cold stone, above sky patch, glimmering blue luminous, below cavernous gloom, flickeringly one candle lit, and in the candle patch we sitting circle-wise against the rock, sitting silent at first, separate at first, but eventually thawed, relaxed, related, sharing bread, sharing blankets, sharing ourselves. On the stroke of two, softly at first, then steadily, down came the rain, down through the dark, dropping on recumbent bodies, outflung hands, arms, drenching hair tangles on improvised pillows, soaking icy into sleeping bags, cold and clear, into sleep, into dreams, soaking through many layered illusion, through life, death, space, time, washing thought, washing emotion, washing perception, rendering consciousness diaphanous, transparent, to existence, to reality, strains of unearthly music, song sound, approaching, receding voices, vibrations. We, looking up through the tower, see star points in the sky patch, glittering intense, See tower shooting upwards, reaching for infinity, walls expanding in all directions, dissolving, collapsing, as swimming in space, spinning on its own axis, us and all things within it, cosmic, dimensionless, the Tor soars. He said, actually, all the experience, all the things he wrote in this, in that poem, there are many others, were all actual experience. Nothing was made up. He just wrote it down what happened. So teaching, practicing the Dharma involves this real communication with people, creating Sangha in this world, in this culture. And Sangha Rachta has been doing that for 40 years now, uh, not just in Britain, but in Europe, the Americas, Australasia, but also he returned to India uh, in the 1970s and carried on his work there. This is what his whole life has uh, been devoted to, really, um, building a Buddha field uh, in this world. 
So I've tried in this talk to give some glimpses of, of, the, of the mythic, the inner life of Sangharach. That hasn't been easy uh, to do, and uh, I'm sorry it's been such a long talk. Sangharach is 83 now, um, and he's still living this same life. He's still teaching the Dharma, he's still involved in the Sangha, he still meets new people, uh, communicates straightforwardly with them. You can all go and meet him if you want to. He's still happy to see people, uh, people he's never met before in our Sangha. Uh, he still has a rich unfolding inner life and an unfolding outer life. He's still very active for an 83-year-old. And I think this is just going to go on and on. In 1962... Sangharachita took the Bodhisattva ordination from his teacher, Dada Rinpoche, who he, he regarded as a living Bodhisattva. So in doing that, he formally committed himself to the path of the, of the Bodhisattva, to attaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. And he's been inspired by this Bodhisattva ideal from the earliest days of his involvement with Buddhism. The first time he came across this ideal of gaining enlightenment all beings, he was inspired by that ideal, the ideal of wisdom and compassion, the ideal of living an intense and rich inner spiritual life and at the same time doing all that you can to respond to the sufferings of others, especially through connecting them to the Dharma as fully as possible. Sangharachita is still committed to that life after all these years and I'm sure he's going to go on doing that until his dying day. He said, uh, Recently, when somebody asked him if he was going to do any sort of special practices to prepare for death, he said, no, I'll just carry on teaching the Dharma. That's the special practice. Um, so he'll go on doing this, and I'm sure he'll go on doing it into his next life as well. And I'm going to end with a poem he wrote in the early 1950s, which really expresses um, this Bodhisattva idea. It's called The Bodhisattva's Reply, and it, he wrote it uh, after hearing an account from somebody from an untouchable, so-called untouchable family. He heard their life story. And he was so moved by their life story. This is what he wrote. The Bodhisattva's reply. What will you say to those whose lives spring up between custom and circumstance, as weeds between wet stones, whose lives corruptly flower, warped from the beautiful, refuse and sediment their means of sustenance, what will you say to them? That woman, night after night, must sell her body for bread. This boy with the well-oiled hair and the innocence dead in his face must lubricate the obscene bodies of gross old men. And both must be merry all day, for thinking would make them mad. What will you say to them? Those dull-eyed men must tend machines till they become machines or till they are cogs in the giant wheel of industry, producing the clothes that they cannot wear, and the cellophane luxury goods they can never hope to buy, what will you say to them, or these dim shadows, which through the pale gold tropic dawn, from the outcast village flit, balancing on their heads baskets to bear away garbage and excrement, hugging the wall for fear of the scorn of their fellow men, what will you say to them, and wasted lives that litter the streets of modern cities, souls like butt-ends tossed in the gutter and trampled on, human refuse dumped at the crossroads where civilization and civilization meet to breed the unbeautiful. What will you say to them? I shall say nothing, but only hold in compassion's arms 
their frailty till it becomes strong with my strength, their limbs bright with my beauty, their souls with my wisdom numinous, or till I have become like them, a seed between wet stones of custom and circumstance. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 